Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 28. As this coming Friday is October the 31st, I thought we could honour it by having just one truly creepy story today. October 31st is apparently a very important day to many different people all over the world. In the Coptic Church, it is... The Feast of Abadeus, it's also St. Quintin's Feast Day. It's also Martin Luther's Feast Day. It's the earliest day on which All Saints' Day can fall in Finland or Sweden. Apparently it can happen on the Saturday between October 31st and November the 6th. For those of us of a non-religious bent, it is the eve of winter, so it's the day before the first day of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. For many of us, it's known as Halloween, where people get dressed up as ghoulies and ghosties and walk around begging for candy. In the Northern Hemisphere, for those of us on the neo-pagan wheel of the year, it is Sowain, and in the Southern Hemisphere it is Beltane, which begins on sunset of October 31st. In Cambodia it's known as King Father's Birthday, and in Slovenia, Germany, and most of the Lutheran Church, it's known as Reformation Day. So on this very auspicious day, I have chosen to share with you Riding Shotgun by Charles de Lint. Mr. DeLint is a full-time writer and musician who makes his home in Ottawa in Canada. His many awards include the World Fantasy Award, the Canadian SF Fantasy Aurora Award and the White Pine Award, amongst others. With 37 novels and 18 collections of short fiction published to date, DeLint writes for adults, teens and children. For more information, you can visit his website. The link is on the triple F. It's narrated for you by our good friend Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and he wrote and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is available free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. 
In fact, before we listen to the story, let's hear a bit more about that. Something wants in. To your head. Through this audiobook. Interference by Eric Luke. An experiment in meta-horror. Available at quillhammer.com. Just click play. Did I say before that it was creepy? It's creepy. And so, without any further ado, let's listen to Riding Shotgun by Charles DeLint. One. I wasn't surprised to learn that my father had died. He would have been 72 this winter, and he'd always lived hard. I doubted that had changed after I left the farm. What surprised me was that I was in his will. We hadn't spoken in 25 years. I hadn't thought of him, except in passing, for maybe half that time. If you'd asked me, I would have said he'd leave his estate to a charity like Mothers Against Drunk Driving considering how it was drunk driving that changed all of our lives. I missed the funeral. There are a lot of co's in the phone book, so it took the lawyers a while to track me down. When they told me he'd left everything to me, I authorized them to put the farm up for sale, with the proceeds to be split between MADD and the local animal shelter. Dad never much cared for me, but... He always did have a soft spot for strays. I could have used the money. I'm a half-owner of a vintage clothing and thrift shop in Lower Foxville, and there always seems to be more money going out than coming in. But I knew it wouldn't be right to keep this unexpected inheritance. Alessandra was good about it. There are things we argue about, but how we deal with family isn't one of them. We're not exactly a couple— but we don't see other people either. It's hard to explain. We met in AA, and we're good for each other. Neither of us have had a drink in 15 years. 16 for me, actually. We have a pair of bachelor apartments in the same building as the store. Ours isn't a platonic relationship, but neither of us can sleep with someone else. Alessandra gets panic attacks if she wakes and there's someone in bed with her. For me, it just makes the bad dreams worse. 2. We open late on Mondays, so one fall morning after the farm sold, but before the closing date, Alessandra and I drive out to have a look at the place. Alessandra wouldn't have come at all, but I don't drive anymore and Newford's public transport system stops at the subdivisions that are still four or five miles south of the farm. I haven't been here in 25 years, I say as we pull into the lane. I see the farmhouse ahead, surrounded by elms and maples in their fall colors, 
The barn and outbuildings lie behind the house, the fields yellow and brown, the hay tall. You know how they say you can never go back? Or how everything looks smaller if you do? As we drive up the lane, everything looks exactly the same. I hadn't spoken to him for that long either, I add. To my father, I mean. Not once. Alessandra nods. She knows. It's not like we haven't shared war stories a hundred times before. Late at night, when the darkness closes in, and a drink seems like the only thing that will let us sleep. Instead, we talk. She pulls up near the house and shuts off the engine. So, what am I doing here? I ask. Why would he want me to have anything? I wouldn't know, Marshal, she says. I never met your father. And wished she'd never met her own. I nod. I wasn't really expecting an answer. The question had been pretty much rhetorical. Do you have the keys for the house? She asks. That makes me smile. I'd forgotten about that. So some things have changed. Back when I lived here, I can't remember us ever locking our doors. I think I'll walk around a little outside first, I say. Sure, I'll wait in the car. I won't be long. She touches the bag on the seat between us. Don't worry, I've got a book. She's always got a book. We pick them up by the boxful at garage and rummage sales, usually for free. You'd be surprised what people will just leave on the curb when the sale's done. Saves them carting it back inside the house and storing it, I guess. At the rate we read, and considering our income, these books are a real windfall. Reading's another way to go somewhere else and keep the past at bay. Don't, you know, she says as I'm getting out of the car. Get all wound up in what you can't change. She doesn't have to say it. I'm okay, I tell her. But I'm not. I don't realize how not till about ten minutes later. If the old man's last will and testament surprised me, what I find behind the barn pretty much takes all the strength from my legs. I find it hard to breathe. It's all I can do just to stand there at the corner of the barn, staring my hand up on the graying barn wood to keep my balance. I don't see the rusted junker sitting in the tall grass on its wheel rims, the tires rotted away, the grill and right fender smashed in, windshield a spider web of cracks, side windows gone. I see the car I'd bought in 1977. A 1965 Chevy Impala two-door hardtop with a 253 V8 under the hood and 48,000 original miles on it. Black interior, crocus yellow exterior, white walls, that long, sleek slope of the rear window. I'm dizzy looking at it. The wreck it is. The beauty and freedom it represented to the 17-year-old who'd worked his ass off for a whole summer and winter to be able to afford it. I see them both for a long time. The car that's there, and the one in my head. Until it finally settles back into the junker it is, and I can breathe again. I push away from the wall, no longer needing it for support. 
I had no idea that the old man had retrieved the car after the accident, or that he'd stored it back here. I was in police custody for the funeral, because there was no one to put up my bail. When I got out of prison after doing my time, the last place I wanted to come was the farm. I wouldn't have been welcome anyway. I walk over to the car and try the door, but it's rusted shut. I make a trip into the barn and come back with a crowbar to pry the door open. I don't know what all's been nesting in it, but it doesn't smell too bad. I get in. My foot bangs against a beer bottle. I remember that bottle. And the other half a dozen just like it, I drank that long ago afternoon. I sit and stare at the spiderweb cracks that turn the view through the windshield into something like a finished jigsaw puzzle. My chest tightens again. Up on the dash is a baseball cap, half-eaten by mice, I guess. I can make out the insignia. The Newford Hawks, from back when the city had a ball team. I used to listen to the games on a little transistor radio while I was doing my chores. I'd dream about my car. Listen to the games. After the accident, I had different dreams about this car. About that day. About how it could all have been different. I still do. Let me drive, Billy had said. You want to go to the quarry, little brother? You're staying in the shotgun seat. I'd let him drive before, but I was feeling ornery that day. Too many beers. Funny. Alcohol was the problem. And afterward, alcohol was the only thing that had let me forget, allowing me the sweet taste of temporary oblivion. But that wasn't until I'd done my time and was back on the street again. When I was inside, I'd wake up two, three times a night. That afternoon still as fresh in my mind as when it happened. I reach under my shirt, pull out a key on a string. I can't tell you why I've kept it all these years. I went through a lot of strings, lost pretty much all I ever had before I turned my life around again. But I've hung on to that key through the years. We've got a jar of old keys in the store, and I thought of tossing it in with the rest. But I never do. Keys are funny things. They can unlock the cage and let you out. The way it was for me when I finally got that car. And they can lock you up and stand guard so that you'll never be free. That key was both for me. The string comes over my head easily and that little flat piece of metal with its cut edge fits into the ignition just the way it's supposed to. I don't know why, but I put my foot on the clutch and turn the key to the right. Of course nothing happens. It wasn't like I was actually expecting it to start up. But when you have the key that fits the lock, you have to try, right? Then I turn it to the left. Backwards. Nothing. I smile to myself, start to turn it back, but it won't budge. I give it a harder turn, then back and forth, trying to loosen it. Something like an electric charge runs up my arm. 
That arm, my whole right side, goes numb. There's a sharp pain in the center of my chest. That radiating out, my vision blurs. I think I'm having a heart attack. No wonder the old man left the place to me in his will. Left this old car just waiting for me. He knew. He just knew this would happen. Crazy idea, but I'm not exactly thinking straight. And then I realize the pain's on the wrong side of my body for a heart attack. Then what? The sharp hurt doesn't go away. But my vision clears. Vertigo hits me, deep and sudden. But at the same time, I'm disassociated from it. I feel like the world's falling away below me, only it doesn't seem to concern me. Everything stays in focus, preternaturally sharp. I watch the cracks in the windshield disappear. They recede, leaving behind clear, uncracked glass. Weirder still, the view beyond the windshield is a flickering dance of images. It's like watching time-lapse photography. Seasons change. Weeds and scrub trees come and go. Clouds strobe in the sky. Here one moment, thick and woolly or thin and long, or dark and pregnant with rain, and gone the next. That's when I know I'm dreaming. Or having some kind of attack. A heart attack. A panic attack. It all stops so suddenly, as if I've suddenly run up against a wall. The last time I felt like that was 25 years ago, when the car was just about to hit the tree, when I put my arm out to stop Billy's forward motion, but there was too much momentum. It just about tore my arm out of its socket with the force of his forward motion. Went crashing into the windshield, cracking it, spraying blood. The windshield's not cracked anymore. There's a summer day on the other side of it, not the fall day that's supposed to be there. Alice. I can't get her name out. I'm definitely driving, a voice says from beside me. You are totally wasted. I turn so slowly, scared of what I'll see, scared of what I won't see. But he's there. My brother, Billy. Alive. Alive! I put a hand out to touch him, to see if he's real. He can't be real. He backs away from my hand. Wow, he says. What's with the groping, Marsh? And then I understand. Not how or why. I just understand that I've been given a second chance. Are you okay? Billy asks. You look a little like Patty Crawford, just before she puked all over the bleachers. I let my hand drop. I'm... I'm okay, I tell him. My voice sounds like a stranger's in my ears. Distant. No. It's just that it's from another time. Funny. I remember so much. A lot of it in painstaking detail. But not the sound of his voice. Not that mole on his neck, right under his ear. I'm just feeling a little... Out of it, 
Billy finishes for me. How many beers did you have, anyway? I look down at my feet. There's an empty bottle there. I don't see any others, but I remember I was starting in on my second half of the 12-pack. I don't even know why. It's a beautiful summer's day. I'm alive. My brother's alive. Why the hell would I be drinking? So, can I drive? Billy asks. I need to explain something here. Billy was the golden boy in our family. The smart one, who knew by the time he was 14 that he was going to be a doctor. I, on the other hand, was unfocused. I like cars. I like girls. I like to party. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life beyond get off the farm. The old man didn't get it. Because it was different for his generation, I guess. You figured out what you wanted to be, what you could be, given your situation in life, and that's what you aimed for. He couldn't understand that not only did I not know, I didn't care. It was bad enough before Mom died. But after that, the friction between us got worse and worse. I could pretend that he favored my brother because Billy had Mom's blonde hair, that his cherubic features reminded us of her, too. But the truth is, Billy was focused, something the old man could admire. He worked hard in school, aiming for scholarships. The money he got from his part-time jobs went into a college fund, not towards a car. I couldn't begin to compete. But the funny thing is, I never resented Billy for that. The old man, sure, but never Billy. His dying was such a waste. See, that was the real heartbreak when he died. He was going to be somebody. A doctor. He was going to save lives. I was never going to be anybody. But I was the one who survived. The drunk driver. The one with nothing to lose. Sitting here in my old Impala, looking at Billy, I know it doesn't have to be that way now. I can change what happened. I could just refuse to go anywhere. But Billy had never let up. He was supposed to be meeting some girl at the quarry. So we have to go. But as long as I'm not driving, it's not going to end the way it did the first time around. Sure, I say. You can drive. I open the driver's door and walk around the car while he scoots over to my seat. He grins at me when I get in, makes a show of putting on his seatbelt. He wasn't wearing one the last time we did this. He takes off his ball cap and throws it onto the dashboard. I fasten my seatbelt as well. And then we're off. It's funny, considering how much I've thought of that moment, that day. But I can never remember what caused me to lose control of the car. I just know where it happened. I tense up as we start into the sharp turn on our local dead man's curve. More than one car has gone skidding off the gravel here. But Billy's got everything under control. He's driving fast, but not too fast. And then it comes. Something. I still don't know what. A cat, a dog, a rabbit. It doesn't matter. Something small. Brown and fast. Billy does the same thing I did. Brakes. 
and the car starts to slide on the gravel. But he's not drunk, and he doesn't panic. He begins to straighten out, but we hit a pothole, and it startles him enough to momentarily lose his concentration. The back wheels skid on the gravel. He touches the brakes, remembers he shouldn't, and lifts his foot. Too late. We're going sideways. He tries to straighten us again, touches the gas. The wheels catch on a bare patch of dirt along the side of the road. We shoot forward, out of the curve, across the road. We're going fast enough to clear the ditch. We clear it. I see the tree coming up, the same oak tree I hit. We bottom out on the field. The shocks can't absorb this kind of an impact, but it doesn't slow our momentum. Then we hit the tree. And the last thing I remember is my seatbelt snapping. My face is heading for the windshield. Three. Hey, cowboy. I blink at the unfamiliar voice, open my eyes. The bright blue of the sky above me hurts too much to look at. Makes my eyes water, so I close them again, lie there for a long moment trying to figure out where I am. When it comes back to me, it's all in a rush. The crash, the same damn crash that killed Billy 25 years ago, repeating itself, even though this time I wasn't driving. And if I'm alive, then that means... I sit up fast. My head spins. I'm lying in tall, summer green grass. The sky's clear above me. The sun's bright. I can hear the sound of bees and flies and June bugs. I don't hurt anywhere. I turn slowly, take in the big oak tree, the road. There's no car anywhere in sight. No Billy. That's impossible. I'd think I was dreaming, but if I am, then I haven't stopped. Because I'm not back in that old wrecked impala of mine. I'm here, at the crash site. And it's still summer. Not the autumn day when I pried open the impala's door in back of the old man's barn. Then I see the girl, the one whose voice brought me out of my blackout. She's standing on the side of the road, one hand on her hip. Her hair is so dark, it's black. She's wearing it pulled back in a ponytail. Her features are pretty, if a little hard. She's wearing bell-bottom jeans, fraying at the hems, and a white tube top. Cute little plastic see-through shoes. Welcome back to the world she says, or what's left of it for us. I realize I know her and dredge her name up from my memory. Ginny Burns. She used to live in the trailer park at the edge of town and ran away from home a couple of years ago. At least it was a couple of years ago if I'm still in the past. She was always a little wild, and her taking off like that didn't really surprise anybody. Like about half the kids in school... I had a major crush on her, but she was unattainable, three years older than me, and she didn't date kids. I'm surprised she's come back. Ginny, I say. She studies me a little closer. I know you, she says. Marshall Coe, right? You've grown up some since the last time I saw you. I may look like a kid, but I'm a middle-aged man inside the 17-year-old boy's body. Still, I feel a flush of pleasure at the thought of her actually knowing my name. 
I covered up by standing and brushing the grass and dirt from my jeans. So, when did you get back? I asked, trying to be cool. What makes you think I ever left? Well, you've been gone. She gives me a sad smile that softens her features and makes her look even prettier. Yeah, she says, just like you. I'm confused for a minute. How could she know I left? Went to jail, moved to the city, that I had this whole life before I found myself back here in my 17th year, starting it over again? How? I start to ask her. But the next thing she says puts a stopper in my mouth that I can't talk around. Did I die? She says. Her face goes hard again. With a wire around my neck and some freak's dick up my ass. I... I don't know what to say. I'm focused on the word die. Then I remember her saying, Just like you. And then... What... What do you mean? She comes over to where I'm standing. Sit down, she says, then lowers herself to the ground beside me, sitting cross-legged. I forgot that it takes time for it all to sink in. What? Seriously? What are you talking about? The short of it, she says, is we're dead. And I don't completely know the long of it. Dead? And my brother? She shrugs. You're the only one who's been lying here. But we were together in the car. Look, I know it's confusing, but it gets easier. Just don't try to figure everything out at the same time. It's too much at first. Easy for her to say. So I'm... We're dead. She nods. Yeah, it wasn't pretty for me. And I guess it wasn't for you either. What do you mean? You've been lying here for a few days. Sometimes it takes the soul a while to wake up again, especially if they died hard. I give a slow nod. I guess I did. But all I really remember is that tree coming up on me so fast. I wish I didn't remember, she says. I think about the little she's already told me of how she died, and it's already too much. Time to change the subject. How do you know all this stuff? I ask. She shrugs. Hanging around in boneyards. The dead have all kinds of things to tell you, if you're willing to listen. So, this is it? This is what we get when we die? She shakes her head. No, most folks go on. Don't ask me where, because I don't know. And I haven't met anybody yet who can tell me. But these ghosts you've talked to. Well, like I said, most people go on. Then there's those you find in boneyards, or haunting the place they died. They won't accept that they're dead, so they just linger. Finally, there's the folks like us. She pauses a moment, but I don't say anything. I'm not so ready to be a part of her us. I don't know that I'm dead for sure. I don't know anything, really. For all I know... I'm still sitting in that junked-out car behind my dad's barn, dreaming all this up. Sure would explain why I feel so damn calm. But whether I believe or not, I find myself needing to know more. What about... I still can't say us, so I settled for... Them. 
We've still got unfinished business, she says. We can't go on. Not till it's done. I figure I know what her unfinished business is. You're waiting for your killer to be found, I say. Hell no. I'm just waiting for somebody to find my body so that people know I'm dead. I can't imagine that. Though, I guess if I'm dreaming, I'm actually imagining all of this. I wonder why I'm still here, I find myself saying. I couldn't tell you. I give a slow nod. I guess that's something we all have to work out for ourselves. I look back at the oak tree, taking the fresh scars on its trunk. Ginny said I've been lying here in the field for days. Guess that explains why the car's not here. And why Billy's gone. I'm hoping it's because he got out of it okay. I'm also hoping that he's not going to go through what I did. But I don't see why he would. I was drunk, with a history of being picked up for one thing or another. Fighting, mostly, and drinking. But joyriding once. Vandalism a couple of times. By the time of the accident, the sheriff was looking for any excuse to put me away. And it's not like the old man ever stood up for me. But Billy was about as clean-cut as they come. Dad would go his bail. He'd make sure Billy didn't spend an hour in jail, never mind the years in prison I did. But I have to be sure. I need to see that he's all right, I say, and stand up. Your brother? Yeah. Mind if I tag along? It gets lonesome sometimes. I don't mind, I say. I start to walk down the road, back to the farm, and she falls into step beside me. So, I guess you're stuck around here, I say. She gives me a puzzled look, then smiles. No, we can go anywhere we want. But I keep coming back, thinking there's some way I can get someone to notice me. You know, so I can steer them to my grave. People can see us, but not all the time. And not necessarily when we want them to. Pike says it's not impossible to interact with those we left behind, but that it's really hard. They have to be what he calls sensitive. The big problem is that even if you do make contact, no one seems to get what you're trying to say. comes out garbled for some reason, or like a riddle. It's not like you can write it out for them on a piece of paper, because the one thing you can't do is have physical contact with the, you know, physical world. Because we're ghosts now. She nods. Who's Pike? I ask. John Pike, she says. He lived at the end of Connell Road. And then I remember. He was a real hermit, living in a tar paper shack at the end of the road. Rumor was he had a fortune in gold stashed away somewhere in that run-down excuse of a house of his. Some kind of treasure, for sure. But he also had a couple of mean dogs and a shotgun loaded with salt that he wasn't afraid to use on trespassers. Did a bang-up job of keeping the curious away when he was alive. He died back in 75, 76, I say. I was just a kid then. So was I. But I remember his picture in the paper. I did too. This scary, wild man, long-haired and bearded. Kids used to dare each other to sneak into his place because everybody knew it was haunted. So he really was still hanging around, I say. Like a ghost. She nods. At least he was when I died. And didn't that freak me out when I first met him? But he's gone on now. She talks about it so easily, like still hanging around after you're dead is the most natural thing in the world. But the funny thing is, 
the longer we're walking along here, talking, the less unbelievable it seems. I mean, considering how this day's already gone for me. So, he said, if we try, we can contact the people we left behind. Yeah, she says, but that it's really hard. You need a pretty strong connection between yourself and the person you left behind. And like I said, the time's got to be right. And there's no way to guess that moment, so all you can do is keep trying. The world's not real for us anymore. All we can do is look at it. We can't be part of it anymore. Feels pretty real to me. I scuff my shoe against the gravel and send bits of it flying into the ditch. Just feels real because you expect it to, she says. But nothing really moved. No one can see you. You can't really affect anything. I just kick the gravel. I do it again. She shakes her head. No, it just seems like you can. You'll see. 4. Want to hear a weird story? I say after we've been walking for a while. She laughs. <laughs> What's weirder than the afterlife? I think of what happened about 15 minutes ago when she stepped in front of this pickup that went barreling by us. How the driver never saw her. How I tried to grab her. How the pickup went right through both of us. It's taken me most of those 15 minutes for my legs to stop feeling so rubbery. Except if I'm dead, how come it feels like I have a body? Earth to Marshall, she says. I blink and give her a confused look. You said you had a weird story, she says. But now you're just being weird. Sorry. So I tell her about it. My old Impala. How when I was trying to get the key out of the ignition, I found myself here, back in the past. There's a long silence before she finally asks, Is this on the level? I nod. So, you're really how old? Forty-three. Forty-three, she repeats. She gets a look in her eyes that I can't describe. Imagine having all those years. I kind of glossed over the jail time and the years on Skid Row, and I don't expand on them now because I know what she means. I might have had some tough times. It doesn't matter that I brought them on myself. But at least I had them. Anything you'd go back and change if you could? I ask instead. She nods. For starters, I wouldn't have gotten in the car with a freak that killed me. You know... I had a funny feeling as soon as I opened his door, but I so wanted that ride. I was so ready to get away from here. She shakes her head, and I don't know what to say. And then we're at the lane leading up to my old man's farm, and I can't think of anything but Billy and my need to know that he's okay. She trails along behind as we walk up the lane, the same lane I drove up with Alessandra this morning, except... That morning hasn't even happened yet. And I guess the way things have turned out, it never will. I'm not sure what I expected to find here, but it wasn't the old man sitting on the front porch when he should be out in the back 40 with his tractor. He's dressed for work, coveralls over a t-shirt, work boots on his feet, John Deere hat on the table beside him. But he doesn't look like he's ready to go anywhere. He looks deflated defeated, and I get scared. Not for me, but for Billy. Because I know now, 
I died in that crash. But so did my brother. There's no other way to explain the old man's grief. I can barely look at him, sitting there in the rocker, holding a framed picture loosely against his chest, gaze staring right through me as I come onto the porch. Jenny takes a seat on the stairs, doesn't follow me up. I stand there, looking at him for a long time. There's an unfamiliar emotion swelling inside me. Unfamiliar, so far as it concerns my feelings for the old man. I feel bad for letting him down, for being such a shit, for not trying to be the man he wanted me to be, but especially for killing the son he loved. I... I'm so sorry, Dad. I say the words I never got to say before. He doesn't hear me, but he shifts in his chair as though he feels something. Then he lays the photo he's been holding against his chest down on his lap, and I find myself staring down at a school picture of my own 17-year-old self. It's not Billy he's mourning. It's me. I back away and slowly make my way down the stairs till I'm sitting beside Ginny. What is it? she says. I shake my head. For a long time, all I can do is stare out across the fields. Ginny puts a hand on my arm. Turns out, we can touch each other. We just can't touch anything in the world we left behind. It's me, I finally say. He's mourning me. Well, what did you expect? You're his son. No, you don't get it. He hated me. When the other time, before I changed how it would turn out, when I got drunk and my brother died in the crash, he never spoke to me again. He never went my bail. He never tried to see me. He was never in the courtroom. My voice trails off. It's impossible to catalog the enormity of the distance that lay between us. So what? Ginny asks. Now he hates your brother? I... I realize. I don't know. I go back up the stairs. The front door's open, but the screen door's closed. I reach for the handle, but I can't get a grip on it. Just walk through, Ginny says, coming up behind me. Maybe we can't touch the world, but it can't touch us either. At least not, she looks at my father, grieving. Physically. I need to go inside to find Billy, but the business with the door is freaking me badly. I can't imagine walking through the screen. But I just can't seem to grab hold of the handle. Jenny steps by me and walks right through the door, screen, wooden crossbars and all. It's like earlier on the road, when the truck went through us both. She reaches a hand back to me, and I take it. I let her lead me inside. Which way? she asks. I nod down the hallway towards the kitchen and take the lead, ignoring the closed doors of the parlor and the front sitting room. They haven't been used since my mother died. When we find the empty kitchen, I lead us up the back stairs. My relief is immediate when we find Billy in his room, sitting at his desk, reading a book. I stay in the doorway, content to look at him, to know he's alive. But Ginny slips past me and walks over to the desk. 
Ew, she says when she looks at his book. I join her and see that he's studying graphic black and white pictures of an autopsy. He's had that book for a while, and it is gross. I know, I've flipped through it before, but I can never take more than a few pictures. He's going to be a doctor, I tell Ginny. He needs to know about this stuff. Yeah, but morbid much? I shrug. He's always been interested in how people work. You know, muscle tissue and arteries and nerves and stuff. Ginny nods. All the things we don't have. I guess. He's a good-looking kid, she says. He takes after our mother. I put my hand on Billy's head, trying to ruffle his hair. But my fingers go into his skull. I pull my hand back quickly. It doesn't matter that I can't touch him, I tell myself. All that matters is that he's alive. But I'd still like to give him a last hug before I go. I settle for a look, drinking in the familiar sight of him, sitting at his desk and studying. And then I leave the room. What was she like? Ginny asks as she follows me out into the hall. Our mom? Everything the old man and I am not. Gentle, kind, thoughtful, and beautiful. She was like an angel. And now she's sleeping with them. I want to hold that thought, but I can't. Not anymore. Unless she's like us, I add as we go down the stairs and step back through the screen door. Trapped in some kind of non-life, able to see and hear the world go on around us, but unable to interact with it. Maybe heaven's where we end up when we go on, Ginny says. Maybe, I say, wanting to be convinced. But Ginny lets my word hang, so if I'm going to believe Mom's safe and happy somewhere, I have to do my own convincing. I give the old man a last glance before I step off the porch and head back up the lane. There's nothing left for me here now. I don't know what happens next, but at least I've accomplished this much. I've changed the past and made things right again. But it's funny. I don't feel any better. Truth is, what I really want is a drink, not a beer, like I was drinking before I died, but a stiff shot of whiskey. I need some oblivion. I almost ask Ginny if there's such a thing as ghost whiskey. Maybe there's a reason another word for hard liquor is spirits. But I settle on stepping out of my own head and getting Ginny to talk about her life instead. What was your mother like? I ask her. She shrugs. I don't know. She left us not long after I was born. I don't remember that from what I knew of her before, but I guess it's not so surprising. The kids I hung with only ever talked about how hot she was. That can't have been easy, I say. I never knew it to be any different. My dad was good to me. You know, he did his best. But he wasn't equipped to raise a kid. Especially not the girl I turned out to be. I can guess what she means, but I ask her anyway. A girl with a reputation, she explains. She shakes her head. It's not something I ever asked for or wanted, but I sure as hell had one all the same. But you... I stop myself from saying it, but she nods and gives me a sad smile. 
put out all the time, right? It's just, I heard... She cups her hands on her breasts. They're not disproportionately huge, but you can't ignore them either. Not in that tight little tube top. I got these the summer I turned twelve, she says. And by Christmas time, everybody thought I was a slut. I got tired of arguing about it, so after a while, I just started acting like the trailer trash everybody had already decided I was. But I'll tell you this. I was still a virgin when I died, her features cloud over. Well, right up to those last few minutes, I guess. I don't understand. Why would all these guys... Oh, please. Derek Kirkwood was the one who started it. Said I'd done it with him under the bleachers during a football game. Now, I was down there with him, but only having one of his beers. And maybe I let him kiss me and have a little grope, but we never did it. Then why didn't you say something when he started telling people you did? I'd already stopped caring. I had a lot of boyfriends, all right. I was happy to have people take me to dances, drink their beer, smoke their joints. But the most any of them got was a hand job. She gives me a sassy grin that never reaches her eyes. But none of them was going to admit they didn't score when Kirkwood supposedly had. They might not ask me out again, but hell, if I had put out, they still probably wouldn't have. Jesus. If I'd had any brains, I'd have put a stop to it long before it got to that point. But it was kind of fun at first, flattering that all these guys wanted me. And then it was too late. We've reached the end of the lane, but neither of us makes a move to step onto the road. So that's why I took off, she says. I wanted a new start. I wanted to go someplace where I could be who I decided I was, instead of letting other people decide it for me. She shakes her head. And you can see what a good plan that was. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I feel like a shit, I say. Why? Because you wanted to get into my pants as much as those other guys? I nod. Well, don't. I probably flirted with you like I did with any guy. I had a rep to uphold and all. Doesn't seem fair. She shakes her head. Nope. And neither does what we've got now. But we're stuck with it all the same. She looks back down the lane at the farmhouse then turns to look at me. So, what are you going to do now, Marshall Coe? She asks. I don't know. You ever been to Tibet? I've never been any further than the city. Not in this life, or the other one I had. So let's do a little traveling. Seeing the sights is about the only option left to us at this point. Now it's my turn to take a last look at the old farmhouse. I don't understand how my father could be grieving for me but it's too late now to find out why he is. 
I changed the past so that Billy's alive. Instead of the waste of a life I had, he can go out there and help people, make it a better world. But I can't be a part of that world. So there's nothing left for me here, except for the question of why I didn't go on after I died. Thinking about it, I realize I don't really care. Sure, I say when I turn back to her. Why not? Five. I think time moves differently when you're dead. You don't eat, you don't sleep. But there's always a little hunger in you that's maybe got nothing to do with food. And while you don't lie down and take a nap, there are holes in your awareness all the same. The days don't seem to follow one after the other so much as jump around when they don't slide by in a confusing blur. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I lose track of time. I lose track of everything. The life I had that ended when I tried to start up that old impala of mine and the half day or so of the second one I got. It all just goes away. We really do go to Tibet. We go to a lot of different countries, spending most of our time in the wild places. It's not like the big cities aren't interesting, and just as wild in their own way. But it gets old fast when people and vehicles keep going through you because no one knows you're there. That doesn't happen to you in the big empty places. The mountains of Nepal, the Australian outback, out on the Arctic tundra, deep in the Amazon jungles the red rock canyons of southern Utah, the Mongolian steppes, the mountains of Peru, the Sahara Desert. Sometimes we're noticed there by people sensitive to the spirit world, but we can't communicate with them, and we don't try. The only conversations we have is with the other dead. We don't spend a lot of time with them either. The ones that stayed behind are mostly a bitter, self-centered group unable to understand why the world still goes on after they've died. I know I'm generalizing here, but unless one has unfinished business, why stay? But the people with unfinished business aren't usually such a great company either. Most of them died hard and unhappy, and don't seem as resilient as Ginny in how they deal with it. They're focused on their deaths, determined to get their business done and move on. No, that's not true. Most of them are just focused on their business. They don't even consider what will happen when it's done. But they're not all like that, because some people's unfinished business isn't of a negative nature. Like the mother who's waiting for her son to graduate, the grandparent waiting for the birth of a grandchild, the husband waiting for his wife to stop mourning and fall in love again. They have stories I can appreciate, at least the first time around. By the third or fourth repetition, I'm ready to move on. Ginny's not like that. She's good company, always ready for a laugh or an adventure, though the longer I get to know her, the more I am aware of this streak of melancholy that runs under even her best moods. I'm also more than half in love with her. And that's just weird because, well, we're both dead, aren't we? It's four years before we get back to this part of the world. I only know that because I remember when I died and 
as we're walking by a newsstand. I happen to see the date on a newspaper right above a heading that reads, Third Victim Found. The headline depresses me. Seems there's some guy running around cutting up young women like they were meat at a butcher's. It's senseless and horrible. And I feel for the girls. Ginny's looking in a store window and doesn't notice the headline, so I don't point it out to her. I don't want to remind her of her own terror time, starting out to find a new life and finding only an end in pain and horror. We don't spend long in the city, but I want to look in on the old man before we head into some new wild place, so we head up into the country. I can't believe how far the city spread in just four years. The old man's changed, too. He seems to have aged ten years instead of four. He's still working the farm on his own now. I check Billy's room, but he's moved out. Takes me a while to track him down. Turns out he made the dream come true. He's in pre-med at Butler U on a scholarship, but he's working a job on the side that lets him keep a crummy little bachelor apartment in Lower Foxville close to the campus. He's taking a shower when we drift into his apartment. I look around at all his books and things, waiting for him to come out, when I realize that Ginny's not with me. I find her in the bathroom, checking Billy out. Jeez, I say, give him a little privacy. She pulls her head out of the shower curtain and laughs. We're ghosts, Marsh. What difference does it make what we see? Besides, he's got a nice butt. I don't want to be having this conversation. Get away from there, I say. But before she can respond, the shower stops, and Billy opens the curtain. First thing I think is, my little brother's all grown up. The second is, where'd he get the black eye? But a funny thing happens when I see that bruise. It reminds me of... It's like I suddenly wake up from a dream, and my thoughts go flying to my other life, the one I had before the old Impala brought me back and put me into this one. Alessandra, I say softly. Ginny turns to me. What? I repeat the name. How could I have forgotten her? The same way I forgot all that other life, I guess. Oh, right, Ginny says. Your old girlfriend. She was way more than a girlfriend, but I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm thinking about how she was five years younger than me. How right now she'd be fifteen or sixteen, still living at home with her father. The drunk who used her as a punching bag. I've got to see her, I say. Ginny starts to say something, but I guess there's a look in my eyes that makes her just shrug instead. I'm proud of you, Billy, I tell my brother. But what the hell are you doing fighting? You're going to be a doctor. You don't have time for crap like that. He doesn't respond. Why should he? He can't hear me. He doesn't even know that we're here. Then I lead the way out of his apartment, heading for where Alessandra is living at this time in her life. I guess you knew her for a long time. Jenny says when we're standing outside the brownstone where Alessandra and her father live. I nod. But not when she was a teenager. Then how'd you know to find this place? 
She took me by here one time. Later, when we were together, we stand on the pavement for a while, looking at the building. We're at the edge of the sidewalk where it meets the road, so that we don't have people walking through us. But there's not much foot traffic anymore. It's almost dinner time, and most people are home by now. So, are we going in? Jenny asks. I guess. But I'm reluctant. For one thing, I'm feeling this enormous guilt at having let all those years Alessandra and I were together just slip away out of my mind like they didn't mean anything. It was just the opposite. They meant everything. She meant everything. For another, I'm nervous about what we'll find. If we've picked a time when her dad's drunk, it'll kill me to have to stand by, unable to step in and help. Marsh, Ginny says. I turn to look at her. You don't have to do this. I shake my head. Yeah, I do. And I move forward, up the steps. Apartment 310, Alessandra told me. We walk through the front door into the foyer. Doing this has long since stopped bothering me. And head up to the third floor. We can hear yelling when we come out of the stairwell. It gets louder as we go down the hall. Then there's the sound of breaking glass. Is her mother around? Jenny asks, her voice hushed. No. She died when Alessandra was just a kid. We step through the door into the apartment. The noise is coming from down the hall in the kitchen. I don't want to be here. I don't want to bear silent witness to Alessandra's terrors. But I can't stop myself now. Alessandra's stories were bad, but it's worth seeing it firsthand. She's lying on the floor, curled into a fetal position, bleeding from a cut on her head. Her father standing over her, a broken bottle in his hand. That explains the cut. Alessandra's crying, soundlessly, trying to be invisible. That's how she'd describe it to me. That's all she was ever able to do, was try to be invisible. But it never helped. Her father's yelling something, but I can't make out the words through the red rage that comes over me. I have hated this man for a long, long time. In another forgotten life. But it all comes back to me now in a rush. All those nights that Alessandra woke up crying. All those war stories she told. Her voice flat. Her eyes lost. Looking off into the past. Her father pulls back his foot. And I lose it. I charge at him. Hands flat in front of me. I don't know what I'm thinking. What good will it do if I go running through him? But I can't do nothing. And then... The impossible happens. My hands meet flesh. The force of my momentum knocks him backward, off balance, and he goes down. The back of his head catches on the edge of the kitchen counter and makes an awful sound, a wet, cracking sound. He twists as he falls, lands on the floor, on his face, and he doesn't move. I stand there, stunned, then slowly step forward. I nudge him with my foot, but the toe of my shoe goes right through him. 
I turned to Ginny. What? What just happened? She shakes her head. We stand in the kitchen for what seems like a very long time, staring at him, waiting for him to move. He never does. But Alessandra gets up. She holds her hand to her head and blood seeps through her fingers. She shuffles over to him with the look of a scared dog, ready to bolt at a moment's notice. She does what I did, nudges him with a foot. Her shoe makes contact, but her father still doesn't move. She stares at him, emotions playing across her features. Then she spits on him and slowly backs out of the kitchen. I'm about to follow her, to do I don't know what, but Ginny grabs my arm. Marsh, she says, her voice strained. I turn to see that the body on the floor has started to glow. Jenny and I exchange puzzled glances. When we look back, the glow is lifting from the body, separate from but retaining the body's shape. It's Alessandra's father, the spirit of her father, sitting up. Neither of us has ever seen somebody die before. We've never been right there when it happens. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm thinking, I don't want to be here. The spirit looks around, then pushes itself up from the floor until it's finally standing. Its face turns to us. But before I can tell if we register in its consciousness, if it even has a consciousness at this point, the spirit begins to diminish. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It's as if there was a tiny pinprick hole in the fabric of the world and the light that makes up the spirit just gets sucked away into it. The last thing we see is that pinhole shining a light so fierce that when it abruptly winks out, we have stars flashing in our gazes. I clear my throat, then manage to say, I guess it went on. Ginny gives a slow nod. I guess. I remember Alessandra, and we go looking for her, but she's left the apartment. I don't know if my killing her father is going to make things better or worse for her, if it's going to stop her slow descent into alcoholism that followed her finally getting away from the man in the life where I knew her, or if it's going to push her into a more radical plunge, into I don't know what. I can only hope she'll be all right. Was this my unfinished business? I say, thinking aloud. Helping Alessandra. Maybe saving her life. You're still here, aren't you? Ginny says. There is that. I reach towards the nearest wall. My hand goes through it. Just like it always has since I died. How could I have been able to push him like that? I say. I can't even pick up a pencil. I don't know. Maybe you just... Just what? I ask, when she doesn't finish. Really needed to, she says. She seems reluctant. Maybe if we need to do it badly enough, we can. You know, to help somebody or something like that. I study her for a long moment. You've known this all along, I finally say. 
haven't you? She nods. But it's nothing I've ever been able to do. Pike told me about it. Why didn't you tell me? Why were you so insistent on my believing that we can't affect the real world? I was scared. Scared of what? That you'd leave me. I don't understand, I say. You told me that when we first met. You didn't even know me then. She shrugs. You just seemed so normal. And you were, too. You are. I'd been so lonely for so long. I'm beginning to understand. You know how to deal with your own unfinished business, don't you? I say. She won't meet my gaze, but she nods. But you're scared to go on to wherever it is we go next. I had so little time to be me, she says. What happens when we cross over? Do we just disappear like your girlfriend's father did? We don't know what happened to him, where he went. I know, but I don't want to go yet. I'm not ready. I can tell she hates saying it because it groups her with all those losers hiding out in their graveyards, able to go on but refusing to. Is there even such a thing as unfinished business? I ask. She nods. And when we do it, whatever it is, do we just get sucked away like Alessandra's old man did? No. But, you know, you start feeling thinner, like there's nothing keeping you here anymore except your own need to stay. Did the graveyard ghosts tell you that? I ask. She shakes her head. No, Pike did. Too bad he's not around anymore, I'd say. I'd like to have asked him about all of this. She told me he'd gone on way back when we first met, but when I look at her now, I see from the expression on her face that that wasn't true either. He's still haunting that shack of his, isn't he? She nods. We stand there for a while, neither of us speaking, uncomfortable with what's lying between us, and too aware of the dead body in the kitchen, of what we both saw happen to the spirit that rose up from it. I can't leave it like this. I won't leave you behind, I tell her. When we go, we can go together. Promise? I nod. But then, everything changes again. Because when we go out looking for Alessandra, we find instead the ghost of a broken girl. 6. Her name's Sarah Hooper, and I recognize her from the picture in the newspaper that I saw earlier today. She's the third victim of whatever freak it is who's been going around killing young women over the past few weeks. She looks even smaller and frailer in person than she did in the photo, but she didn't go down easy. They say you shouldn't fight back, she tells us, but I didn't care. I guess I knew he was going to kill me, and I just wanted to hurt him if I could. I hit him a few times, in the face, where I knew it'd show. But in the end, he was just, you know, too strong. It's not too hard to figure out what her unfinished business is. She was pretty messed up when we found her sitting on the ground in an alley not far from Alessandra's apartment, just staring at the brick wall across from her. But she's tougher than she looks. 
So I'm really dead, she says, as we bring her up to speed on what she is now, why she's here. I wasn't sure, she laughs without any humor. <laughs> I know how that sounds. But you don't expect to still be around after, you know, not like this, where nothing seems any different except you can't touch anything. Nobody can hear or see you. Do you think you'd recognize the guy? Jenny asks. Oh, yeah. We have had a class together at the university. I never really talked to him, except for this one time when he asked me out. But he caught me on a bad day and I just shot him down. Jenny nods. He gave you the creeps even then. Not really. He's just one of those guys with the choir boy good looks and that's never appealed to me. But mostly I guess I was so hard on him because of the way he was always looking at me in class. He was, like, always watching me, it seemed. Do you know his name? I ask. Coe, she says. William Coe. Don't try to call him Bill or Billy. I called him Bill when I was turning him down, and he set me straight pretty quick. Everything inside me goes still. Our... Are you sure? Jenny asks. Sarah nods. You don't forget the name of the guy who kills you? Her gaze goes from Jenny to me. You know him? She asks. I give a slow nod. He's my brother. Your brother? Jesus! She pauses for a heartbeat, then adds. So, did he kill you, too? I start to shake my head but Jenny speaks up before I can. He was driving the car when Marsh died, she says. I want to say he didn't do it on purpose, but I'm having too much trouble getting my head around the idea that Billy could be responsible for this woman's death. And at least two more. Billy, who wanted to be a doctor, to help people. Or maybe just to find out how they work, so he'd know the best way to hurt them, to prolong their pain. Because I'm thinking of that book with all the autopsy photographs in it. Maybe, maybe those pictures made him feel good. The idea of it makes me sick. So, Sarah's saying, I just need to find a way to, to what? Bring him to justice? Get my revenge on him? Something like that, Ginny says. And then what? You go on. Go on where? Ginny shrugs. We don't know. Nobody on this side does. Sarah gives a slow nod of her head. Mm, I've got to think about this. You don't have to be alone, Jenny says as Sarah starts to walk away. Yeah, I do, she says. I really do. We watch her walk away down the alley. Neither of us makes a move to stop her. So, that's where he got the black eye, I say. Jenny nods. I'm so sorry, Marsh. You had nothing to do with it. I know, but... And that damn book of his. It should have been a clue. There's no way you could have known. A deep sadness has settled inside me. But riding on top of it is the same anger I felt a few hours ago when Alessandra's father was beating her. I have that need to hit something. And I kick at the nearest garbage bag. It goes flying across the alley and breaks against the far wall, spilling its contents. 
Don't be mad at me, Jenny says. I know what she's thinking. First she disappointed me, and now my brothers hurt me even worse. But I'm not mad. Not at her. She wasn't deliberately trying to hurt me. She didn't tell me everything. Only because she was so lonely. Maybe if I really was the seventeen-year-old I looked to be, maybe I wouldn't understand. But I've seen things that kid never has and never will. Prison. Living on the streets. The life of an alcoholic. I know that people mess up and get messed up by what life hands them. Jenny had a fucked up life and a worse death. And then she spent two years as a ghost, unable or unwilling to touch or be touched by anything or anybody. Is it any wonder she's clung to the first person who came along and treated her the way everybody deserves to be treated? I'm not mad, I tell her. How can you not be mad? I've lied to you about everything. I shake my head. No, just about the one thing. But maybe you could have stopped your brother before he started killing those girls. Girls who died the way she did, alone and hard. I hadn't even thought of that, that I could have stopped him. Maybe, I say, but probably not. I'd have had to follow him around every day just to know he was doing it. I'd have to suspect him first. And why would I do that? He was my little brother. You don't suspect your little brother of being a freak. So I'd have had to catch him in the act or heard about it the way we just did. To believe. And maybe that's my unfinished business. I came back and changed the way things were meant to be. Maybe my unfinished business is to fix this second mistake because it looks like what I thought was my first mistake, drunk driving, killing my own brother, wasn't really a mistake at all. Ginny's gaze goes to the garbage bag I kicked against the wall, then returns to me. I know what she's thinking, but she says it anyway. You have to kill him, like you did your girlfriend's dad. Don't think I haven't already thought of that, but I shake my head. I don't know if I can just kill a person in cold blood, I say. What do you call what happened back in your old girlfriend's apartment? An act of passion, not something I planned to do like this would be, I sigh. But it's not just that. Is it because he's your brother? I shake my head again, but I don't have any words for a while. I stare at the spill of garbage across the alley. Ginny waits. Finally, I turn to look at her. I think I probably could do it, I say. But I just can't stop thinking about the three girls that he's killed. How there might be even more. They just haven't found the other bodies yet. And if we don't do something now, he'll kill even more. I know. What I'm trying to figure out is a way to undo what I've done. So that nobody ever got killed. Understanding dawns in Ginny's eyes. You're going to try to get the car to bring you back again. I nod. You're going to leave me. I want to say, it's not like that. But we both know it is. 7. The old Impala's still out behind the barn. My dad saved it this time around, just like he did before. 
It's not in as bad shape as it was in my other life. The front end still banged in and the windshields cracked. But it's still got all of its windows, and it's not nearly as rusted out. There's not as much scrub and weeds growing around it either. We get in the car. We stare out through the cracks in the windshield. In this life, I don't have a key hanging around my neck. But in this life, there's a key still in the ignition. I put my hand on it but my fingers go right through. I think about Billy. Let the anger come back. But that doesn't help either. Maybe all I have to do is wake up, I say after about ten minutes of this. Maybe all of this really is just a dream, right from when I first stuck that key in the ignition. Except I'm here, Jenny says. I don't want to say. That doesn't make a difference. It could still be a dream. There is that, I tell her instead. He must be doing something wrong, she says. Now that she's accepted that I'm doing this, or at least that I'm trying, she's been full of useful suggestions. Unfortunately, they aren't helping any more than my own efforts. What were you thinking about when it happened before, she asks. Were you really concentrating on the day of the crash? On your brother? I shake my head, and her voice trails off. I wasn't thinking hard about anything, I say, and for sure I wasn't looking for a way to live it all over again. I spent most of that other life of mine just trying to forget. Then, I guess we need to go see Pike. I guess we do. The funny thing is, this need of mine to stop Billy, I'm not even sure that this is my unfinished business. If I believe that, then I have to believe that life is preordained. And I don't buy that. We make a difference in the world. For good or bad, whether we want to or not, we make a difference. And I think it's our choices that make the difference. But I'm not really looking for a Frank Capra moment here, though I'd love to wake up from this. Instead, I find myself at what's left of John Pike's ruin of a shack, with the crazy-looking old man himself sitting there on a rocker, the ghost of an old blue tick-hound asleep at his feet. Bring a while, he says to Ginny. She nods. I want you to meet my friend, she says, and introduces me. I can't help myself. I have to ask about the treasure, if it really exists. Sure it does, he says. Have a look inside. So I do. But there's nothing there, just a big mess of moldering books and magazines, old newspapers yellowed and chewed up by mice. I don't see it, I say. It's right in front of you, boy. The books, the learning. You won't find a bigger treasure than that. The kid I look to be would have been disappointed. And I do feel a little twinge of disappointment myself, because, like everybody else, I have believed those stories. But I understand what he means. I learned the worth of books and knowledge over the years. Mind you, I didn't use them to learn, so much as to occupy my mind so that I wouldn't think of other things. Things I used to wipe out of my mind with alcohol before I went on the wagon. We need your advice, Ginny says when I come back out onto the porch. And then we tell him the whole sorry tale. Can't be done, he says when we finish up. I've got some ideas about how you did it in the first place, but without a body. 
You're not going to be able to do it again. You sure about that? Sure as I'm dead. And I'm plenty damn sure about that. I try not to let my frustration show and look out across the scrub brush lot that fronts what's left of his cabin. But that doesn't mean there isn't a solution to this problem of yours, he goes on. I turn back to look at him, trying not to feel too much hope. I've heard stories, he says, of spirits who ride a living person, take them over, make them do the things that are so hard for us ghosts to do. Physical things. You mean like possess them? He nods. You just slip into their heads and take over. Works best with someone who's empty, you know, who's got nothing going in his life, nothing to look forward to. They're just waiting for any damn thing to come along and fill them up. I start to understand what he's telling me. But that won't work with Billy. He's got too much to look forward to. All those other girls he's going to kill. But it also works on someone you were close to when you were alive, Pike adds. Works better, maybe. Like my brother, he nods. But the way I heard it, you only get the one shot at riding somebody. You can't just jump from person to person. I'd only need that one shot, I hesitate, then add. Except... How do I know I can get the car to take me back again? I don't even know how it worked in the first place. It's not the car that's doing it, Pike says. I think it's the key. What do you mean? Sometimes if you touch something often enough for luck, all those touches gather up inside the thing to become a real charm. The way riverbanks get beaches when sand drifts up in the curve of the watercourse. It's not planned. It just happens. And not all at once, but slowly, over the years. You think I made a charm out of that key? Have you got a better explanation? I didn't. So, Pike goes on, you just have to hope the key sitting there in the ignition of that car is the same one that you carried around with you for all those years. It probably is, Jenny says, because you didn't get to take it away with you this last time. Because this last time I died. And if that's the case, Pike says, it's probably the same key you brought back with you from that other life of yours. If, if, if. There's only one way you're going to find out, he tells me. Taking over Billy's easier than I think it will be. He's sitting in class at the university, and I just sidle up to him and slip right in. Then I get up and walk out of the lecture hall, leaving his books behind. Ginny falls in step beside me, and I turn to look at her. I can still see you, I say. I guess once you know how, it doesn't go away. You had a funny look on your face just now. She nods. I wasn't sure who it was inside. She reaches a hand to touch my arm, but it goes right through. We better get going, I say, before Sarah shows up with her own revenge in mind. When we get outside, I check Billy's wallet. 
There's enough money in there to take a cab out to the farm, so that's what we do. The old man's out in the back forty. We can hear his tractor from here, so we know he won't be disturbed. I get in behind the wheel, but I look at Jenny sitting beside me before I touch the key. I don't mean to break my promise, I start to say. She shakes her head. It's okay. I'm already dead. Saving these girls is way more important. I wish I could go back and save you. I wouldn't have listened to you anyway. You'd just be this kid talking weird. If this works, I'm going to look for you when I'm done. She gives me a sad look. I won't know who you are, she says. All of these years that we've been together won't have happened. Not for me. I'll remind you. Don't make any more promises. There's no blame in her voice, but it hurts all the same. I can't even kiss you goodbye, I say. She smiles, the sadness deepening in her eyes. I wouldn't want you to, she says. Not looking like him. I nod. I reach for the key and turn it, waiting. But nothing happens. Do whatever you did the last time, Ginny says. I think about it until it comes back to me. I turn the key right, then left twice, then quickly back and forth, and damned if the electric charge doesn't come rushing up my arm and the world around me starts to do its rewind thing again. Goodbye, Marshal Co., I hear Ginny say. I'm going to miss you. Then she's gone, and I'm back in time again, Billy and me, sitting in the car on that long-ago afternoon. Eight. Here's the thing that none of us considered. If I'm riding Billy, who's going to be inside my body? I find out pretty quick. I don't come back to the same moment I did before, where Billy was trying to convince me to let him drive. I come back to where he's already in the driver's seat, about to start up the car. I turn to look beside me, and I'm sitting there, which, let me tell you, is freaky enough. But even freakier is, it's Billy looking out of my eyes. What the hell? He says. His voice is slurred from all the alcohol in my body that he's not used to, I guess. And he's totally confused. Well, who can blame him? But I don't give him time to adjust. I start up the car and pull out from behind the barn, my third time making this trip. Oh, Jesus, Billy says. Stop the car, Marsh. I'm... something's wrong. I just keep on driving. He reaches out a hand to me, but I shove him against the passenger's door, hard. His head bangs against the door frame. He's saying something else, voice rising in panic, but I tune him out because I need to work this through. I thought I'd go back to when I arrived the last time. Before I let him get behind the wheel, I'd refuse to let him drive, and everything would go back to the way it's supposed to be. But obviously I didn't. It takes me a moment to figure out why I didn't. It's because when I worked the mojo this time, it was his body turning the key. 
This was the only point we could return to when he had his hand on the key in the ignition. What I have to do is figure out what happens next. If the passenger always dies in the crash that's coming up, does that mean he will die in my body? Or will we switch back and I'll die again? I can't take that chance. It's not that I'm scared of dying. I've already been there. It's that I can't take the chance that he'll survive. And I realize what I have to do. I can't let the crash happen. I don't know how I'll stop him from becoming the killer he's going to be. But that's not something I should be trying to work out while driving this car. On this road. On this afternoon. Jesus Christ, Marsh! He yells. Stop the goddamn car! We're driving faster than I realized, but he's fumbling with the door handle anyway, trying to get it open. He's still got his seatbelt on, but he could take it off. He could fall out, and at this speed, he could kill himself. I keep one hand on the wheel and grab at him, turn my gaze back to the road, and realize we're already into the curve. How do we get here so fast? Billy struggles in my grip. I stomp my foot on the brake. But he pulls me at just that moment, and I hit the gas pedal instead. I see the flash of the little animal darting out onto the road. I don't know if we run over it or not, because right then, we're leaving the road, heading straight for that damned oak tree again. And I realize, I screwed it up this time as well. Nine. I get to go to the funeral this time. My own funeral. In Billy's body. How weird is that? Not half as weird as things are going to get, I guess. I have to deal with my father's grief. Then there's the whole business of being Billy. Only I can't be Billy. I can't become the doctor he was going to be. I don't have it in me. I'm having enough trouble just pretending to be him these past few days. To tell you the truth... I don't know how long I can deal with any of this. I mean, I can't even look in a mirror. So I don't know what's going to happen, how long I'll last. But I know I have to hang on for a while, because I still have some unfinished business. For one thing, there's a girl in the city that needs looking after. I have to get Alessandra away from her old man. But I can't just waltz in and sweep her away. She's only twelve or so at the moment. Hell, I look to be only sixteen myself. But there's something else I have to do before I deal with any of that. After the funeral, I go back to the house with my father. He changes, like he's going to work in the fields. But instead, he takes down that photo of me and goes out and sits on the porch, holding the photo, staring across the fields. I change, too. I walk around behind the barn to where my old impala sits. I ask the old man why he had it towed here. It's all we've got left of him, he told me. There's no key in the ignition. I found it in my hand after the crash, and I put it in my pocket, just like I did the first time around. And just like in that other life, I'm wearing it on a string around my neck. Don't ask me why. It just seems important. I look at the car for a while longer, then walk away 
across the fields alongside the house till I get to the county road. I follow it to the dead man's curve, leaving the road when I reach the old oak tree. Anybody seeing me here is going to think I'm mourning my brother, but I'm not. I'm waiting for Ginny to show up. I've come each afternoon since the crash. I don't know if I'll be able to see her, but I call her name, and I talk out loud, hoping she's around, that she can at least hear and see me, even if I can't see her. I tell the story of the first time we met, and I urge her to stop living a half-life, to finish her business here and go on. I can't tell if she hears me. I can't tell if she follows my advice or not. So I come back each day and do it all over again. Today's no different. I walk up to the oak tree and lay my hands on the fresh scars that mar its bark. I say Ginny's name. Once. Twice. And this time, a voice answers me. Who are you? I turn. And there she is, standing on the side of the road, the same way she was the first time I met her. You're here, I say. And I smile. It's the first time I've smiled in three days. It's so good to see her again. You can see me, she says. You're alive, and you can see me. Yeah, I can. And you can hear me. I nod. Come down and sit with me, Jenny. We need to talk. She studies me for a long moment, then slowly comes down from the road and sits down under the oak. She puts out a hand to touch me, but her fingers go through my arm. I thought, maybe, she says, but she lets her voice trail off. Something I can't read moves in her eyes, and she looks away. I wait, patient, until she turns back to me. I know you, she says. You're Marshall Coe's little brother. It's such a small thing, but I'm pleased that she remembers me, remembers me by name, and not Billy. Yeah, well, sort of. What do you mean, sort of? It's a long story, I tell her. The one thing I have a lot of is time, she says. I know. How do you know? So I start to tell her, right from the beginning, the way I've just told you. And that, my darlings, brings us to the end of this, our super creepy Winter's Eve show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did hosting it, and I'll be here again next week. Same time, same place, slightly less creepy stories. Next week is my birthday show, so I've snagged some real doozers for that one. Until then, kick back, relax, enjoy life. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. 
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.